Long Reads is supported by Haymarket Books. One Haymarket title you might enjoy is Revolutionary Social Democracy, Working Class Politics Across the Russian Empire by Eric Blanc. Blanc draws on research in eight different languages to tell the story of socialists in Tsarist Russia's imperial borderlands, from the factories of Warsaw to the oil fields of Baku. He shows that the Russian Revolution was much less Russian than is commonly assumed. You can find Revolutionary Social Democracy at haymarketbooks.org. Readers in the US and the UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The song we're listening to is Auf, Auf zum Kampf. Originally a song for German soldiers in the First World War, it was rewritten after the murders of Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. It became an anthem of Germany's radical left. This version was recorded by the folk singer Hannes Vader. More than a century after her death in 1919, Luxembourg is unquestionably one of the most celebrated Marxist thinkers. But until very recently, most of her work had never appeared in English translation. Verso Books and the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation have set out to fill the gap by publishing her collected works. Peter Hudis is one of the editors who've been working on that project. He's a professor of philosophy and humanities at Oakton Community College and the author of several books, including Franz Fanon, Philosopher of the Barricades. Before we go into more detail, could you give people a general picture of how much new material from the writings of Rosa Luxemburg has appeared in English translation for the first time over recent years through the publication of her complete works? There is about, probably about 80% of Rosa Luxemburg's total body of work has never been translated even to this day in English. So there's a lot there to choose from. So what we decided to do uh, with the first uh, volume of the complete works, which is the first of two volumes of economic writings, is to start there because some of the newest discoveries and most of the significant things that had not appeared before in English in terms of even book-length works would fall under her economic writings. So one of them is the introduction to political economy. This is probably her second most important work after the accumulation of capital, serious 300-page theoretical work which tries to give a historical account of the development of capitalism and how capitalism is distinguished from pre-capitalist and non-capitalist social formations. It had never been fully translated into English until we published it as volume one of the complete works back in 2013. But what it also contains is a series of manuscripts, lectures, lectures, notes, etc., that she composed as part of her work on the introduction to political economy when she taught uh, Marxist theory and economic history at the uh, German Social Democratic Party school in Berlin between 1907 and 1914. So Rosa Luxemburg was a teacher as well as an activist, a militant, and a theoretician in general. 
and um, there was a huge corpus, a considerable corpus of, of writings that were not known until they were discovered, writings on anthropology and ethnology and on non-Western societies connected to a work on introduction to political economy that were not known. Everybody had thought these manuscripts had been lost, but they were discovered by the Japanese scholar Naruhito Ito in the ni- late 1990s. So uh, we published them. It was actually the first time they had been published anywhere, and of course the first English translation. And they make up a big chunk as well, volume one, of the complete works of Rosa Luxemburg. So that's a real coup. It's lots of material in there that's never seen the light of day. Volume two is his new translation of Luxembourg's Accumulation of Capital by Nicholas Gray. The only earlier extant English translation prior to that was by Agnes Fortschild. That was done back in like 1950 or so. And it needed a lot of work uh, and updating, uh, beginning with the title. For some reason, the English edition left out the subtitle of the book, The Accumulation of Capital, colon, A Contribution to the Economic Theory of Imperialism, which kind of contextualizes what the book is about. And there were problems with her translation as well, including on issues like the so-called primitive accumulation of capital and how uh, actually the phrase is used by Luxembourg is more like original expropriation, captures it better. So a number of issues, it's a really, really, it's not simply an updated translation. It's really a qualitatively improved one. And then we go into the political writings. So the complete works are arranged by economic writings, two volumes, and then political writings, which is going to be probably at this point, maybe 10 or 11 volumes. And the political writings are broken up by a theme. So we decided that the first theme or the first rubric of the political writings would be her writings directly on revolution. Of course, everything she wrote in a way was about was about revolution in some way or another. But her writings directly on the 1905, 1906 Russian Revolution, 1917 Russian Revolution, 1918 German Revolution. And these comprise three volumes. And uh, there we're talking about a lot of new material. So volume three, what was discovered by a number of archivists going back to Annelise Lashiska in Germany, who was the a person who uh, originally had helped put together her Gesammeltewerke in German, the collected works in German, is Luxembourg wrote a lot of material as a journalist. But many of these articles were not signed, or many of them were written under a pseudonym. So uh, Annalise had done years of work to identify which ones were by her and which ones uh, were not. And it turns out that, which was widely known, but we didn't know the specifics, that she was actually writing front-page articles on Volvots, the main newspaper of the Social Democratic Party of Germany, uh, throughout 1905 on uh, the unfolding Russian Revolution. And it was like a daily blog, virtually, of the revolution in action. And there's several hundred pages of this material. There you can see Luxembourg responding on a day-to-day basis to revolutionary developments. She's both reporting on what's happening in Russia, but she's commenting on and also drawing theoretical generalizations from what's happening. So that material in volume three of the complete works, I would say about 85% of that book has never appeared in English before, the material that's in it, maybe 90%. Volume four, uh, which takes her writings on revolution from 1906 to 1909, this deals with the aftermath of the 1905 revolution, which becomes a, a defeated revolution by the end of 1906. And it, it contains Luxembourg's reflections on the defeat of the revolution, what were the reasons for it, what were the implications, but also what were the contributions of the of the revolution. And this is where she wrote her famous pamphlet on the mass strike, which is also a new translation by Nicholas Gray. 
and many other writings on the mass strike that were not in English before that are part of volume four. What's additional part of volume four, about one third of the book, nobody has seen before um, except a handful of people, would be a number of uh, writings, essays, theoretical, substantial theoretical pieces she did as part of her work within the Polish revolutionary movement that had not even uh, been, some of them not even published uh, in German translation, let alone in English, and they're in there as well. And that really creates a, a fine vantage point on not only her work within the German movement, but actually her, her work within the Polish revolutionary movement. Volume 5 also has a number of manuscripts that, especially some very, very interesting uh, notes on revolutionary history and uh, writings on the 1917 revolution that were not in English before. And that's the one that's going to be coming out um, after the new year or by the new year. Let's talk about the political writings that have appeared so far. Luxembourg was born in Poland and she spent her career as an activist operating between two very different political environments. There was the Russian Empire of the Tsar and the German Empire of the Kaiser. How would you say those two contexts shaped her political thinking? She rose up in Russian-occupied Poland. Poland was, of course, divided uh, end of the 18th century between um, Prussia, what becomes Germany, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and uh, what becomes known as Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Russian Empire. She was Jewish, so uh, and a woman, and disabled. So she's somebody who's growing up within a colonial setting. That is, this was a colonial domination of Tsarist Russia over Poland that had negated uh, the independence, along with other uh, empires surrounding it, that it had 800 years history. So this, I think, shaped her her political thinking very directly because she knew what it was meant to be a victim of colonialism. And I think it's one of the reasons for her very sharp interest from very early in her career on trying to understand the modern manifestation of colonialism, that is imperialism, what drives it, what governs it, how is it connected to the very logic of capital. These interests, these concerns really, really drove her from, from very early on and led to her, you know, undoubtedly her most serious and systematic theoretical work, the accumulation of capital. Uh, so there's no question that um, growing up in autarkic Russian Empire and Russian-occupied Poland not only made her sensitive to the problem of colonialism and imperial domination, but it also created a situation where being a serious revolutionary was not something that was simply about giving a speech. In other words, uh, if you were in this, uh, in Poland, at the, the part of Poland that she was in that was under the control of the Russian Empire, you came out and called yourself a Marxist. You were involved in political activity as a Marxist. You right away had your life in your hands. There was uh, extreme, vicious, virulent status repression, which actually caused her, prior to being 20 years old, to have to leave Poland and migrate to Switzerland. But she took that experience working in the underground in Poland. She joined the revolutionary movement at 15 or 16 years old, and she worked with the first Polish revolutionary organization, Proletariat Two Party, the second Proletarian Party, uh, in the underground, doing all the work you do as an underground activist. And so there's no question that when she gets to Germany and from 1898 onward, and that's where she lives for the rest of her life with you know short trips into Poland in uh, 1906, it's that contrast of the revolutionary movement in the, the East and the not so revolutionary movement in the West, even though it proclaims its support for revolution, 
that you're going to see showing up in her writings and gives her the sensitivity, I think, to uh, be one of the first to go after Edward Bernstein's revisionism. Uh, she, she and other Russian and Polish Marxists very early on sensed what the danger that was posing to the Marxist movement. And even before Karl Kautsky, who wrote a very fine critique of Bernstein as well, she issued a very serious uh, refutation of his position in Reform and Revolution that I think shows that revolutionary alarm that she brought with her from her early years in Poland. Luxembourg is known for having put forward a distinctive view in the debates among Marxists about national self-determination in the early 20th century. How would you say that position was influenced by the Polish context into which she was born? And would you say the new material that's available now in English has given us a new perspective on her ideas about nationalism? Yes, well, taking the first part of your question first, it was taken as a staple within not just the Marxists, but the revolutionary movements as a whole in Europe, that Poland and Ireland were the linchpins of uh, national struggles for self-determination, and that the successful outcome of the European Revolution would in large part depend upon the independence of Poland and the defeat of Russian domination over Poland and, of course, many other parts of Europe at the time, directly or indirectly. So Marx and Engels were firm supporters of Polish self-determination and national independence, even though it didn't have a revolutionary labor movement at the time that they were writing, or at least it was first in the process of first emerging towards the end of Marx's last few years of his life and Engels' last decade. Luxembourg was part of a minoritarian current, a very unorthodox current, which argued against self-determination from Poland arguing that Poland being split into three parts by three different empires, uh, national independence from Russia would not mean very much. Uh, her doctoral dissertation argued on economic grounds that an independent Poland, uh, given the situation that found itself in, would lose its trade connections to the larger Russian empire, it would be economically unsustainable. So she adopted the position very early on that the proletariat two-party had of saying that the task of the Polish proletariat is to unite with the Russian proletariat in the Russian Empire, as well as the other ethnic minorities in the empire, like the Jews, the Bund, the Latvians, Lithuanians, Ukrainians, etc., but not on national grounds, on international uh, proletarian revolutionary grounds. So she was a fervent opponent of demands for national liberation as, uh, in her view, a diversion from the need for a unified class struggle. And that position more or less carries forth throughout her entire career. Now, she wasn't afraid to say she was disagreeing with Marx and that she felt Marx's position was outdated. She wasn't afraid to disagree with the leaders of the Second International, who many of them were more inclined towards the Polish Socialist Party, which did support national independence and was a revolutionary Marxist party in competition with Luxembourg's Social Democracy, the Kingdom of Poland and Lithuania. But I should mention that it wasn't that she opposed national self-determination in all contexts. For instance, she said Greece has a right to national self-determination vis-a-vis the Ottoman Empire and other subject nationalities of the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans who were struggling for national independence. She did not oppose those struggles or consider or write them off because, she said, these are countries that do not yet have an industrial proletariat or a very, very minimal one, and therefore there's no workers' movement for, there's no socialist movement for the nationalist perspective to divert people from. (laughs) So she held in those conditions where 
the labor movement was hadn't gotten off the ground yet, then fighting for national demands might have a place. And there was room for that. But once you have the emergence of an industrial proletariat, she held, it's workers of the world unite. And to define that struggle in terms of, of a struggle for national independence, she thought, I think wrongly, by the way, on this, uh, was something that got in the way of um, proletarian working class revolutionary solidarity. Now, in the volume four that we've published, there's a lot of her writings, as I mentioned, on the Polish movement. And here we see a side of Luxembourg that is not often discussed. You see her sectarianism because you had the Polish Socialist Party, which was much larger than her party, and she was in competition with them because of her opposition to national self-determination and their support for it. And don't think that the Polish Socialist Party was a social patriotic or right-wing party. It was not. It was an orthodox Marxist party with many different tendencies, but some of them and the majority of them for quite a long time having more in common with Luxembourg's overall political perspective than differences with it aside from the national question. Now, after the defeat of the 1905 revolution, a section of the PPS does move to the right under Josef Pulsutsky, who starts out quite good, by the way. You read the early Pulsutsky, and this guy is talking about the dictatorship of the proletariat, and he seems to mean it. Uh, but he moves to the right after 1905 and becomes more of a putschist nationalist. But there's other parts of the PPS that move further to the left, and they want to ally with Luxembourg's party. They want to form Soviets together. They want to work in United Front activity, uh, the PPS Luica or the PPS left. And Luxembourg won't have anything to do with them. She says that, uh, well, you're part of this tradition that supported national self-determination. They come back and they say, well, we're willing to defer the demand for national independence of Poland in order to strengthen our links with the Russian proletariat. So they had even kind of dropped the demand that separated the two parties. Luxembourg still wouldn't work with them. She said, well, you can announce to the world that you've uh, that your politics have been bankrupt for the last uh, decade, and uh, then you can apply for membership in our party. <laughs> and she refused to have United Front activities with them, with some exceptions. So that was not a beneficial development in my view, because by the time you look at the unfolding developments in Poland, by the time you get to the workers' uprising in Poland in 1918 that followed the Russian Revolution and the collapse of the Tsarist Empire, her party did not have sizable roots in the Polish working class because the Polish working class had decided by then that it wanted an independent Poland. And uh, they wanted it for objective and understandable reasons. And so here is where uh, Luxembourg very often acted in a very centralistic manner in her dealings with the Polish party, expelling members or dissidents that wanted to compromise or work with the PPS Luica or other groups, or at least kind of tone down some of the virulent anti-nationalist rhetoric that they were power issuing. But um, unfortunately, those folks were not listened to. What were the main arguments that Luxembourg made about the first Russian revolution of 1905? And how did she seek to engage with that revolution in her political activism? Yeah, well, that's a really key issue, key question for Luxembourg. 1905 was really one of the most remarkable revolutionary moments in I mean, modern history. It was the first nationwide revolution that essentially involved the working class and peasantry as well, of course, given that the country is over 85% at the time, close to 90% consisting of peasants. The main basic argument she made about the Russian Revolution was that it showed that even though the working class was a minority of the, of the Russian Empire, 
that it played the vanguard role in destabilizing the czarist regime. It came close to overthrowing the czarist regime. It didn't succeed in doing so. But as of October 1905, it looked like it could go either way any day. And it was a momentous upsurge. I mean, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of general strikes in different locations and locales broke out. Cities were occupied and taken over by worker militias. I mean, major cities in Latvia, in, 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 in Poland itself, Russian-occupied Poland, in Russia, etc. So her argument was that the Russian Revolution showed that the proletariat, the working class, had matured to the point where it could take the vanguard lead in the struggle, and that the liberals or the liberal bourgeoisie, uh, while they can serve as an ally of that struggle, cannot be trusted uh, to be its leader. And this was, of course, um, develops a difference between her and the Mensheviks, not before but after 1905. The Mensheviks also held a proletarian hegemonic position uh, prior to 1905, but many of the Mensheviks also moved to the right after the defeat of the revolution and argued that the working class was still too weak to be the leading force and that uh, the revol- they had to take a back seat to the liberal bourgeoisie as the main force in promoting uh, the overthrow of czarism. So she became more and more critical of the Mensheviks, much more closer to the Bolsheviks and worked very, very closely with them. She lived in Krakola, Finland for several weeks in 1906, where she wrote the mass strike pamphlet, engaged in continuous discussions with Lenin, Zinoviev and other Bolshevik leaders. And they saw eye to eye on this question. But please, you have to understand, she did not argue, she did not claim that Russia was prepared for a socialist revolution. She never accepted the notion that a minoritarian working class can produce a transition to socialism. Only when the working class, the proletariat, becomes a significant force, with by significant, you really mean majoritarian, within the population of a given society, only then can it really affect, that society affect the transition to socialism. So she held that the task on the agenda was a proletarian revolution that produces a bourgeois democratic republic that would be under the heavy control and influence of the working class, but that it would be one that would be introducing democratic reforms, abolition of the monarchy, eight-hour day, religious liberty, freedom of the press, etc., but that the task of transitioning to socialism would not come for some time afterwards, a number of years of, of, of social development. And that was not an unusual position. That was what Lenin's position was too until 1914, certainly, maybe until 1917. The real point that she uh, uh, emphasizes throughout is even though socialist revolution for Russia is not on the agenda, as against perhaps for West Europe, nevertheless, the form of revolt that um, the working class adopted in uh, the Russian Empire, the mass strike, is something that should be adopted by other socialists in Central and Western Europe to push their own socialist parties and socialist movements further to the left in a more confrontational approach uh, to resisting society. And that became really the main theme of her work that she drew from the 1905 revolution. As she put it, it's time for us Germans to start speaking Russian or you Germans to start speaking Russian. And she wanted to have the wind from Russia sweep across Europe and to galvanize and radicalize the revolutionary movement. And at first, she had allies in this, like Kalkowski, who had at first the same identical virtual position, and many others uh, within the leadership of the Second International. But as time wore on, this became, it became evident that there was many more differences between Luxembourg and the others, including Kautsky on this issue, than seemed to be at first sight. And by 1910, 
this broke out into the open. Uh, she felt that um, the leadership of the SPD and the Second International, but particularly Chukowski, was now moving to the right and was trying to tone down the emphasis uh, on the mass strike and bringing that in as a central tactical and strategic component of the German workers' movement. And she broke off relations with him at that point, and they became bitter rivals from then to the end of her life, which I think she never kind of forgave him for. But her main perspective uh, that she learned from the Russian Revolution is that the proletariat at various historical turning points creates new forms of organization and struggle, in this case, the mass strike, that uh, has a universal significance. It does not have significance simply for autocratic backward Russia, but this can also be adopted to radicalize and push the European socialist movement in general and uh, push it closer towards a confrontation with state power. How did Luxembourg view the political terrain in countries like Germany and France, for example, where, in contrast with Russia, labour movements and socialist parties were able to organise in the open at the beginning of the 20th century? What strategies did she think were suitable in those countries? It could be said that Luxembourg was addressing two different audiences in much of her writings. One was the Polish audience. She's writing in Polish. She's writing for the Polish revolutionary movement. She's writing for a Polish audience that is living under, and Russian audience, that's living in conditions of severe repression, absolutism, okay? And so it naturally follows when you're living in these quasi-underground conditions that the form of organization that's needed, the form of struggle that's needed, has to be largely centralized, clandestine, combining legal and illegal work, very often with the emphasis on the illegal work, okay? So when we look at the debates within the Polish movement, it's understandable that Luxembourg would have this, uh, uh, all of her criticisms of Lenin centralism, her own party was rather centralist within Poland. And out of, partly out of necessity, but partly out of what simply seemed to make sense to her, given the parameters of her battles with the PPS, which, as I've mentioned, you know, has its positives as well as its negatives, especially negatives. But she was well aware upon setting foot in Germany, after all, she came there from Switzerland, one of the most democratic countries in Europe, that there the situation is very different. Now, Germany was not a true democratic society at the time. Of course, it had a monarchy. It had a three-tier electoral system that disenfranchised large parts of the population. But nevertheless, and it had had anti-socialist law until 1890 that you know kept the socialist movement on the sidelines to a large degree and under surveillance and repression. But by the time she arrives in Germany, it's a very, very different atmosphere. And likewise in France, where the relationship between legal and illegal activity is flipped, right? There it's predominantly legal, parliamentary voting, electoral strategy. That's what predominates in such moments uh, of political stability in a bourgeois democracy. So uh, there's no contradiction in Luxembourg's perspective for acting one way within the Polish movement and acting a rather different way within the German movement because there were different historical contexts in which she was operating with different political contexts in which she was operating regarding one or the other. So what happens uh, with her uh, relationship to Germany and France, however, is she advocates participation in parliamentary bodies. She was an active of course, women couldn't vote at the time, but she was an active campaigner for women's suffrage. She was an active campaigner for the SPD in, in elections. She toured the country. She was a barnstormer. We, we have re- reproduced a number of her speeches and from the stump in the years 1906 up until 1910. We're working on that now in volume six. 
It's amazing stuff that she did. She was tireless in terms of her agitation for widening the political uh, electoral franchise and trying to elect as many socialists to parliament as possible. But she did not hold that you first had to achieve a parliamentary majority before you can pull the plug, as it were, and seek the overthrow of the government through a social revolution. She held that, of course, you need majority support from the working class in order to achieve a transition to socialism. But that doesn't necessarily mean the majority of votes in a given election. And this is one of the factors that caused tension between her and Kautsky in particular, and August Babel and other SPD leaders, that she began to feel already by 1906, but increasingly uh, by 1909, 1910, that they were um, moving in a, a, opportun- a direction of opportunism and reformism, despite their earlier criticisms of Bernstein's uh, reformism. So you could call it a kind of inside-outside strategy, right? She sees the need to take part in these electoral bodies in order to build up the support for socialism within the German and the French working class. And when that support becomes significant enough, a crisis emerges and a revolutionary moment, a revolutionary insurrection becomes possible, then the party would have the uh, support that could make that uh, achievable. But this is a very different approach than saying that, well, if we have a tight, compact vanguard party and we organize the most advanced workers, even if we have minoritarian support within the working class, we can still achieve a social revolution and a transition to socialism. This is not her perspective. And I want to underline that because many people overlook this who may praise Luxembourg from various political persuasions. And by the way, initially, Lenin had the same position, right? You can, a lot of evidence that Lenin himself pined for the day, just prayed for the day when the Tsarism would be overthrown and Russia could turn into a normal bourgeois democracy and he can transform the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party into a quote-unquote normal Social Democratic Party like the SPD in Germany. He would have loved to have seen that situation arise, but the defeat of the 1905 revolution prevented that from happening. But Luxembourg didn't make a virtue out of necessity by giving up the perspective or questioning the perspective that you need majoritarian support among the oppressed in order to be able to carry the transition to socialism forward. Looking at the economic writings now, why did Luxembourg decide to write her major work of economic theory, The Accumulation of Capital? And what would you say she added through her writings to the existing body of Marxist economics in the early 20th century? Yeah, well, that's a huge question. (laughs) Well, the accumulation of capital itself arose kind of by accident. I mean, she was working on the introduction of political economy, which is a very serious theoretical work. I mean, I think it's a great book to give people as an introduction to, let's say, Marxist capital, even though it's not an analysis of Marxist capital itself, but it's from a historical angle trying to explain the nature of capitalism in the spirit of what Marx was doing in capital. But in any case, while she's working on it, she didn't finish it, by the way. It was left unfinished at her death. It was only published in 1925 in German, originally, the introduction of political economy. And we were very late in English to get it in. We were the first to get it fully translated in volume one of the complete works. Other countries had it much earlier, like Spain, Italy, etc. But in any case, in the course of working on the introduction of political economy, she was very, very interested in the relationship between capitalist development and non-capitalist societies. That is, capitalism develops by devouring non-capitalist strata. 
commodifies, it tries to tear down so-called natural economies. It tries to destroy non-commodified social relations. Uh, it seeks to undermine communal property forms and communal formations of working the land as well as possessing it. And it does so with terrible violence and disregard for human life. And this is documented really brilliantly in her introduction to political economy. Now, as she's working on this, she comes across a thought crosses her mind, which we now realize it crossed her mind some years earlier, but now it's the time that she actually writes it down on paper. It's a letter that she writes to her former lover, uh, but comrade, and they remain comrades in their life, very close collaborators, Leo Yogesh's in February 1912. And she says that I am now very interested in this problem that I've run across is that it seems to me that it's not possible for capitalism to be able to continuously expand and accumulate capital on an ever expansive scale without occupying, uh, exploiting, and destroying non-capitalist strata in the non-capitalist world. That is, it needs colonialism and imperialism to sustain itself on a daily basis. These are not, it's not simply a political decision that's made. It's not simply for greed. It's not simply for bad, a matter of bad politics or whatnot. It's driven by the very innards of the logic of capital for capitalism to consume and undermine as much as it can non-capitalist strata. But the question she says is, why is it that Marx, at the end of volume two of Capital, abstracts from foreign trade and abstracts from the relationship between capitalist and non-capitalist strata and instead treats the entire world in an abstract theoretical model at the end of volume two, which deals with formulas of expanded reproduction? Why does he assume, at least for the sake of his presentation, not that he, Marx believes this is a, how the real world works, but for the sake of an abstract theoretical model that is an heuristic device – Marx assumes away foreign trade, realization crises, et cetera, et cetera, and treats capitalism as a single enclosed single nation and wants to examine the dynamics of capital accumulation by abstracting out questions of foreign trade or the relationship between capital and non-capital strata. Marx was fully aware, of course, as Luxembourg well knew, that Marx himself completely well understood that you can't have capitalist accumulation without colonialism, <laughs> right? I mean, he said that the very birth of capitalism was tied to the transatlantic slave trade, that the very expansion of capitalism in Europe was dependent upon exploitation of non-European lands. But he was trying for purposes of a specific theoretical issue, trying to draw a kind of a abstract model of expanded reproduction, trying to basically follow in the footsteps of the great French physiocrat Quesnay, uh, who had drawn a model of expanded reproduction for an agricultural economy, he was trying to draw such a model up for an industrial economy. And he makes these, uh, for the purposes of simplification, these abstractions from foreign trade, etc. Uh, Luxembourg sees this as contradictory to what she is emphasizing in her own theoretical work. So she says, I, I need to turn to a direct study of this. And she turns to a brief study of Marx's work on this question and she issues a very sharp critique of volume two of capital for what she thinks is Marx's erroneous simplifying assumptions, that he um, his assumptions were failing to take account of the actual reality of how capital accumulation actually occurs. She accused him of that his theory failed to account for the actual empirical reality. And she sought to correct his theory of expanded reproduction by showing that what drives capitalism is uh, uh, capital accumulation 
is fundamentally the fact that the surplus product that is produced by uh, workers cannot be consumed either by the workers in full because workers' wages are suppressed by capital, nor can they be consumed by the luxury goods of domestic capitalists, which are very few in number. So therefore, there's a glut. There's too much surplus goods. There's overproduction. uh, But there's not enough uh, purchasing power among paying consumers to realize the value of the product by consuming it. Because after all, if you produce a product, uh, no matter how valuable it is in the eyes of capital, if, uh, if it doesn't sell, if nobody can buys it and consumes it, it's worthless from capital's point of view. Not from our point of view, but from capital's point of view. So she uh, says, well, if, if you can't get expanded reproduction based on the domestic home market, which Marx was assuming is the parameters of his uh, formulas on expanded reproduction at the end of volume two, then where does that effective demand come from? It can't come from within the system. It's got to come from outside the system. And the effective demand can only come from non-capitalist strata. So that's what she tries to show in the accumulation of capital. Now, this has a big impact in some respects and not a big impact in others. The actual book itself, the reception of the book was very disappointing to her. The one person who wrote a positive review of it at the time was Franz Mering, who didn't know much economics. As a matter of fact, so little economics did he know that he wrote a very famous biography of Marx, and he has a chapter in it on volumes two and three of Capital, which he did not write. He had Luxembourg write, but he doesn't give credit, didn't give credit to Luxembourg in the book. <laughs> so she wrote one of the chapters of his biography of Marx. We published it in the volume uh, two of the complete works uh, to set the record straight. That it was actually by her. But in any case, the point is, most other Marxist, Anton Panikok, very famously, uh, a number of other individuals, jumped into the debate, Otto Bauer most prominently, and uh, very sharply criticized her because they thought that she was deviating from how they understood Marxist orthodoxy. But in the years after her death, something very curious happened because she was emphasizing the role of effective demand in capital accumulation. And the problem that uh, capitalist societies have in generating enough effective demand to realize the value of the surplus product This dovetailed with the emergence of Keynesianism, right? That is before and during the Great Depression, Keynes and Kelechi and others recognizing that it's the the, the lack of effective demand that was the fundamental thing holding back the ability of capitalism to extricate itself from the Great Depression. So therefore, the idea is uh, pump priming the economy through the state, through the welfare state in particular, in order to increase the purchasing power of the working class and therefore overcome or at least ameliorate the tendency of capitalism towards endemic crises. Michael Kelechi actually once said that her accumulation of capital is the uh, most uh, comprehensive analysis of the role of effective demand in economics until you get to John Maynard Keynes. Now, I think Luxembourg would have been, and John Robinson also applauded Luxembourg's work uh, for that reason. I think Luxembourg would have been rather ill at ease at this compliment, uh, because her aim was not to figure out how to save capitalism through pump priming the economy. Her aim was tried to explain, one, what's driving its imperial dynamics, imperialist dynamics, and two, what needs to be done in order to destroy capitalism. <laughs> but that was outside the parameter of Keynesian and post-Keynesians, obviously. So um, it, it had an important impact but in a way, her critics missed the mark because they also misread Marx in a way kind of she did herself. Marx was not suggesting that in the real world, uh, there's no realization crises or in the real world, uh, you know, 
the paying consumers can realize the value of the surplus product. Marx was rather arguing that the logic of capital is such that there's not only individual consumption of the surplus product by classes of people, there is also productive consumption of the surplus product by capital itself, right? Machines eat, as it were, constant capital. They consume it and grow bigger as constant capital in the process, right? To build a car, you need steel, you need iron ore and, and, and coal for, to make the steel. These components, value components of what's called constant capital, they're the ones that suck up much of that surplus product, but never sufficient to stabilize capitalism enough to have it avoid crises. That was at least Marx's position. But many of Marx's, uh, Luxembourg's critics in the Second International and some afterwards read Marx's formula as suggesting, well, capital accumulation could go on forever because he abstracts out realization crises from his analyses. And they were politically reformist. So it looked to Luxembourg, it only strengthened her own conviction that they were wrong in their analysis, but in a certain way, they were making the same mistakes from opposite points of view. How would you say Luxembourg's analysis of capitalist development holds up now more than a century later, with capitalism having spread to virtually every corner of the globe? In one sense, very well. And I have to reiterate that part three, I mean, accumulation of capital has part three parts. The first two parts are, well, the first part is the general presentation of the problem of accumulation and where it contains a criticism of volume two of capital. The second part deals with various left-wing and not-so-left-wing economists from Sismondi uh, to the Russian populists, etc., very detailed critiques of their approaches to the problem of expanded reproduction. Unfortunately, most people who read the book seem to skip part two. I find it the most interesting of all, but <laughs> maybe it's just me. But the part three is the really the outstanding contribution because that is her hist- the historical delineation is part three of the process by which capitalism uses imperialism uh, to destroy non-capitalist strata in the developing, what we now call the developing world or the global south, we can say. And it's full of brilliant insights. And you read what she says about how the British took over Egypt, what the British did to communal land ownership patterns in India, uh, what Anglo-American colonialism and capitalism did to the Native Americans and to Australian Aborigines, etc. Brilliant analyses and so relevant to what's happening in the global south today. Uh, the pushing of peasants off the land, which global climate change is obviously accelerating uh, the transformation of rural laborers in China, for instance, 900 million of them over the last three decades into proletarians or, uh, or other workers in the, in the major cities that have sprouted up as a result of this primitive accumulation of capital, as we call it. It's a beautiful delineation of this dynamic. So in that sense, it holds up quite well. What doesn't hold up well is one of the central theses of her analysis, which is there always has to be an outside of non-capitalist societies, not just non-capitalist strata or non-capitalist elements, but non-capitalist societies for capitalism to, as it were, cannibalize. It has to be an outer to capital for capital to generate its own inner strength. Now, in her day, of course, this sounded quite sensible more than that, because after all, only a tiny portion of the world had could be defined as capitalist by the time she died in 1919, right? And even decades later, much of the world was non-capitalist or quasi-capitalist, whatnot. But when we get to today, and even before that, actually, well, where are the non-capitalist societies today? 
I guess there are some people out there that still think that China is not capitalist or is even socialist. I don't buy that at all. I think that China is a wonderful example of what Marx called the primitive accumulation of capital, what's been going on there the last 40 years. It's now passed beyond the primitive stage of so-called socialist primitive accumulation and uh, is a major industrial capitalist power. What else? Uh, Putin's Russia is socialist or non-capitalist? And when did it stop? And when was it to stop being capitalist? Just when they uh, brought back private property? I would actually argue that Stalin's forced industrialization drive of the 1930s was actually called by his regime the socialist accumulation of capital, a socialist primitive accumulation of capital. What a horrible phrase, because the primitive accumulation of capital in 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 the West is what killed millions and millions of indigenous peoples. That was the price to be paid for that expanded reproduction. Well, the same, very similarly happened in, in Russia, but uh, Stalin's Russia, but in a much shorter time span, millions, millions murdered, starved to death, literally for the sake of industrializing the Soviet Union. So even that, I would say, was state capitalist. By guy today in 2023, 20, where are we? So if there's no outside to capitalism, it has to be an outside capitalist societies for capitalists internally, a capitalism internally to be able to continue its, its, its logic of accumulation. This now reaches its kind of limit of uh, acceptability, this kind of thesis, right? When the whole world has become capitalist. And yes, ca- there are endemic crises in capitalism, of course. There are serious, serious problems. This system is killing itself. But is it killing itself because of a lack of effective demand or is it killing itself because the domination of constant capital, the variable capital, dead labor over living labor, uh, the means of production over means of consumption have become so extreme and so predominant that the system is literally choking itself to death in a, a lack of living labor to reproduce the value of the accumulated capital on the one hand and on the other hand, a drive to eliminate as much living labor as capitalism possibly can through AI and computerization and technology and everything else in order to boost profit rates. So capitalism is caught in this contradiction. So I think going back to Marx's own theory of accumulation and Marx's own theory of uh, the logic of capital, it probably gives us more to go on for today than uh, Luxembourg's theoretical model, even though her description of the process is virtually unsurpassed. Apart from the specific arguments that Luxembourg made about economic issues, more broadly speaking, she seems to have had a certain view of Marx's economic writings as being a vital starting point rather than the last word on the subject, as did some of her contemporaries, such as Rudolf Hilferding, for example, or Nikolai Bukharin. They all thought it was necessary to produce new works looking at the way that capitalism had developed since the death of Marx. Do you think that approach is a useful one to bear in mind for people who are today looking at capitalism from a Marxist perspective? Oh, yeah, it's definitely a useful perspective. I think any Marxist has to rethink what Marxist Marxism means for today, not what it meant in the past simply, but what does it mean for today? You have to rethink the legacy in light of new subjective and objective realities. You can't live by the truths of a different era. And capitalism keeps mutating and changing and transforming as well as the struggles against it. So we have to constantly rethink and redevelop. But it's tricky here, uh, and that's always fraught with difficulties. You mentioned Hilferdink, for instance, or, or, or Bukharin, Hilferdink with his theory of finance capital. Bukharin, who was very taken with what he saw as capitalism's technological marvels that it was creating uh, by the 1920s and uh, its mechanization, Taylor system, etc., 
was extremely impressed by this and was trying to think of how socialism can use these sorts of developments, right? So-called socialism can use these sort of developments. There's always a danger of getting caught up in the phenomenal expression of capitalism as a particular moment that you're trying to analyze. You're trying to respond to the latest new developments, but doing so in a way that you fail to to show how the logic of capital, especially as articulated by Marx in the three volumes of Capital, manifests itself as the driving force in these contemporary developments. And that gets the people in a lot of trouble, I think. Uh, for instance, you have a lot of people who have been arguing for some time that I can mention a number of names, but I'll save time by not doing so, that, well, the fact that industrial labor is so much of a lesser percentage of the workforce employed in that today than in decades past, and the emergence of a high-tech digital economy, et cetera, which didn't exist in earlier decades, et cetera, uh, it indicates that the, the law of value uh, that drives capitalist society is no longer functioning or is no longer relevant even. I think that's a mistaken perspective. It confuses certain phenomenal changes on the surface level of society, failing to connect them to the logic of capital, which is to augment profit as an end in itself and to try to sweep away anything that gets in its way that hinders that development, and it does so by accumulating capital at the expense of living labor. So the logic of Marx, this, uh, Marx's analysis of capitalism, is that it has to do, go to this technology. It has to go to this replacement of living labor by dead labor. It has to go to AI. It has to go to all of this, even though it's eating the very foundation of the system alive in the very process like a snake eating its tail. Um, so I think that... Um, Developing new works that deal with the reality of capitalism and the struggles against them today are very extremely important. But there's also a long history of falling short in many of these efforts. So we constantly have to uh, rethink things and be open to new developments. As a final question, in the light of the new material that we now have available, how would you situate Luxembourg in relation to the wider Marxist culture and movement over time? Well, she was a product of the culture of her time, and she was a product of the standard notions of Marxism of her time. And this is both a strength and a limitation. It was a time when you had this massive labor movement. You had a revolutionary industrial proletariat. You had actual revolutions occurring. You had mass political parties that called themselves socialist or Marxist. These we don't have in the same way today or at all. But at the same time, there are things that um, are limitations of her era that she inherited. I mean, one is that she didn't know Marxism as a philosophy of liberation. Although she acted, her work, her life exhibited a commitment to human transformation, which is very much in the spirit of treating Marxism as a philosophy of liberation. But she didn't know of Marx's humanist writings that were discovered by people like Dunyevsky or C.L.R. James and circulated in the English language world back in the night, beginning in the 40s. She didn't know about those writings. She didn't know about the Grinmarys, she didn't know about his writings of his last decade that Keo Sato, great Japanese scholar, has recently been published a new book on, uh, Kevin Anderson as well, that show Marx's increased interest in the non-Western world uh, in the last 15 years of his life. She didn't know about all these dimensions. So she was resting upon a rather narrow basis of Marx's theory that we have a much greater foundation of today to draw from, a fountain to draw from. So there's just three things I would mention that allow us to see further, perhaps, than the cultural background of her own time. One is that she had a firm belief in historical necessity, that socialism will necessarily and inevitably arise from the contradictions of capital. That's much harder to sustain today. The struggle against 
capitalism, the need to transcend it has never been more important, but it's not a preordained possibility. Yes, she used the phrase socialism or barbarism. She actually was not the first to say that. Basically, Marx said it too, sort of Kautsky. But the point is, is that she thought that the economic laws of capitalism would themselves necessitate a transition to socialism. We can't be as confident about that today. We need a more active intervention to halt the locomotive that's running without a conductor uh, to steer it. We can't rely on the laws of history to do our work for us. Secondly, her concern, and understandably for her period, was the, was the working class, the industrial working class. Our concern today has to be much broader than that. It has to take in issues of feminism, has to take in issues of, of, of uh, struggles against racism, questions of LGBTQ rights, etc. These were not on the, did not have the same weight in her generation uh, as they do today. So uh, we can learn a great deal from Luxembourg, but of course we, we read her through the eyes of our contemporary problems and our contemporary issues. And this is where I would want to therefore end and say this, however, you read Luxembourg as a whole, read her letters as well as her political writings, read her economic writings as well as her political writings and her letters, read her as a whole, because she's a multidimensional figure. And when you read her as a whole, you really get a different picture. You get a picture of somebody who is an implacable humanist, who is simply would refuse to put up with any kind of support for any tyrannical or authoritarian party organization or government in the name of liberation. And this has been the biggest problem of Marxism in the last hundred years. Too many Marxists have defended authoritarian regimes or they're still doing so, or have authoritarian hierarchical political parties that reproduce some of the worst divisions of labor that you find in a normal capitalist enterprise. Luxembourg was somebody who passionately wanted to see the individual become free of all those sorts of shackles. And that is the red thread that runs through the political writings, the economic writings, and her personal correspondence, where she's constantly challenging her friends and colleagues, stand up and try to be human, right? Try to recapture the humanism that capitalism robs from us. That is the, 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 th- the reason that draws me to this project and draws me to Luxembourg in general, is that, of course, we read her critically. We're not living in the same time as her, and there's many things that we look, we'll see differently than what she saw. Uh, but there is this underlying spirit in her work that um, really is in conformity with Marx's notion that he articulates when he was a young man, that we must take up a stand against any manifestation of the human essence uh, materializing itself in an inhumane form in opposition to itself. Any form of dehumanization you must oppose, and you must stand in solidarity with those who are struggling against that dehumanization. That is something that even her wrong position on the national question doesn't get in the way of. Many thanks to Peter Hudis for that introduction to the work of Rosa Luxemburg. You can read two essays by Peter about her ideas on the Jacobin website. <laughs>